Welcome to the Gatecast. Presented by Alan and Mike. Lucy, I'm home. I am not Lucy. Oh, you're right. We'll just upload a computer virus into the mothership. I was going to do my living room like this. Well, sir, my recommendation is that anyone attempting to leave the mountain should be shot on sight. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of The Gatecast. We're going to be doing something a little different this week and new for us. Well, at least for me, my co-host Alan has interviewed an author or two in his time for various other podcasts. Mm-hmm. This week we'll be chatting to Keith R.A. DeCandido, well-known author in the genre community, both licensed work, doubleizations, and original work. Welcome to the show, Keith. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. You're more than well. We're glad to have you. Indeed. Indeed. We're going to kick right off. We're not going to muck about too much. We'll do a little right. bit of... Well, we're not going to muck about too much. <laughs> I know that is the usual... Modus operandi. The reason detra. <laughs> Keith, born and raised in New York, I believe. Yep, still live there. The Bronx. Yep. In fact, uh, one of the projects I'm working on right now is a uh, first of an urban fantasy series that takes place in the Bronx, specifically. Um, the Bronx, for those of you who don't know, is the northernmost of New York's five boroughs. Usually when people think of New York City, they think of Manhattan. If they want to be really edgy, they'll think of Brooklyn. Meanwhile, the other three boroughs tend to get lost in the shuffle. Um... So I, uh, although Queens, Queens is getting some love lately because yeah. there's been a lot, there's a couple of film studios that have, that have opened up in Queens and a lot of shows are filming there, but the Bronx gets no love at all. And, you know, if it is, it's outdated memories of, uh, the 1975 movie Fort Apache, the Bronx, which everybody still thinks is what the Bronx is like. So <laughs> now, this is my attempt to kind of, you know, actually give some love to my home borough. Right. Something to look forward to then. Yes. I did listen to, uh, an interview you did on another podcast. Well, actually a couple of podcasts. I think one of them were was Visionary Trek and another with Sci-Fi Diner. Yeah. You're talking about your early reading list, Tolkien and P.G. Woodhouse. Mm. My par- it's all my parents' fault. They they kept shoving stuff like Tolkien and Woodhouse and also Heinlein and Le Guin yeah. under my nose, uh, and it pretty much ruined me. So <laughs> That probably explains why you became an author, though. I, w- I was reading Asterix and things like that, you know. So, Alan, you had a question you wanted to start with. I did. And as I said in the pre-interview, I I asked it to an other author and considered that the best or worst question you could ask an author, and it's not where do you get your ideas from, it was, so tell me about your books, because to be honest with you, I've never actually read any of them. (laughs) (laughs) The problem with that is that I've written about 50 of them, so I it's a rather uh, broad-based list. I, I have, I mean, thanks to the wonders of one-click and instant gratification, just bought your first original novel. Uh, Dragon Precinct? Yes. It's offering me Dragon Precinct Cliff's End, book one, whatever that is. Oh, okay. That, you may have got, yeah, that's probably the audio version. Might for be the audio. Ni- for one ninety-nine. Oh, narrated by Michael Page, yes. Yeah, that's the yeah. For some reason, Audible decided to refer to it as the Cliff's End series, which is not what I actually call it, but whatever. Yeah, the first four Precinct novels are all available as audio. Um, I actually have not listened to them yet. I mean, they've been out for a couple of years, but I, I've never gotten around to listening to them, so I have no idea how they are. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm proud of the book, but I don't know how the audio is one way or the other. I um, am the sorry. No, no go ahead. Um, do not interrupt the author. I I I, I am <laughs> the audible sort of addict of the podcast. I I listen because I play Ingress, which I'm not going to mention again. 
can't I can't I'm, I'm familiar with the yeah the, I, I, the can't, I I tend to listen as I wander about ah yeah I consume audiobooks at a rate of about eight to ten hours of recorded audio a week some of my work is available on audio so uh but I, I've just, for that because it's two dollars and because an audible credit costs twenty two ninety five I bought it so again instant gratification this means when I finish yeah. the book I'm listening to now I get to listen to it straight away while I'm waiting two weeks for them to deliver it to me. Oh, no, hang on, I bought it on Kindle. Duh. Oh, well. <laughs> I did have the pleasure of contributing to your Kickstarter, Keith, for Dragon and Danthrus and Torin's second case. Which I really need to write that story. I like the updates. Yeah, all keeping us updated. That's yes. as good as gold when it comes to crowdfunding. At least we know it's on the way. Yeah, it's one of those, I mean, it's for good reason, you know. It's, it's frustrating just that part of the reason for doing the Kickstarter was because work wasn't coming in very quickly. Um, so this was, you know, an alternate revenue source, basically, and another opportunity to do a story. And then, of course, all of a sudden, the floodgates open, and I'm, I'm being, you know, pounded with work. Yeah, and you've got to prioritize it. Yeah, but it's frustrating, and I, I have started the story. That's the irritating part. It's like I, the, the, I have begun the story, and I know what the story is. I just got to carve out the time to sit down and write it. And every time I've wanted to, you know, other things have gotten in the way. But, um, you know, including there are some projects that took longer than than others than I expected them to. So, you know, things that came out of nowhere. In fact, one of the ones that took longer than I thought it would was the Stargate book. It just uh, writing Khalees Wrath took a little bit longer than I thought it was going to. A couple of weeks ago, did the final proofread on it and was very pleased with how it came out. So, yeah, so I was reading uh, some of your articles and blog entries for Thor.com. Every now and again, Khalees Wrath would be mentioned out, such and such. And you think, well, <laughs> it took a bit longer than you imagined. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get round to Callie's Wrath. We'll, I think we'll wrap the show up and then we can devote a, a bit of non-spoilery time to it. Okay. If we look back at your career then, I didn't know the Chronic Rift used to be a public access TV show. Yeah, that's how it started out. All of us were right out of college in 1990. Uh, me, John Drew, uh, a bunch, and a bunch of other people got together and we only really intended to do like seven or eight episodes and it just sort of metastasized on us. Um, for four years, we did that as a, as a TV show. I was one of the hosts, and I also did comics reviews. We did news, we did reviews, we did panel discussions, we did interviews, and, and it was a lot of fun for four years. Uh, we got to you know have all sorts of cool people on the show, lots of authors, uh, editors, agents, artists, cartoonists, uh, animators, actors. Uh, it was great. And we always tried to, to have a balance between professionals and fans. We always, like, our roundtable discussions usually had three guests, and we always tried to get at least one person coming from the fan perspective as opposed to the professional perspective on the various things. Yeah, mixing it up, it's better when you get different viewpoints on subjects. Exactly. But for four years, it was just, it was getting to be too much. It was getting, you know, both the time and the expense was getting to be too much for all of us. And so we, you know, after about 100 episodes, we finally ended it. And then in 2008, we realized we could do it as a podcast, which meant, you know, it was it was much easier to coordinate because we didn't all need to be in the same place at the same time. We didn't need to pay for studio time, which was the biggest financial factor. And it's been kind of foul a bit lately, but in general, we've been doing some good stuff. In a lot of ways, that sort of thing is better suited to being a podcast than it was as a TV show anyway. So, Well, it lasted a bit longer than Dead Kitchen Radio, didn't it? That fell into the same time sink as the Kickstarter story. It just There just wasn't time to dedicate <laughs> to it. I want to get back on to doing Dead Kitchen Radio again. That was my own personal podcast, which I did for a couple of years there, and then I just... I ran out of time to do it, but I want to. I want to get it back going. I think it was. It was a fun thing to do. It was a good. Uh, I like reading my own fiction. I don't have the audio equipment properly do 
an audio version of my own stuff. I just, you know, it's me sitting in my bedroom, you know. I don't have the technical skill to properly produce an audio, you know, for somebody like Audible or, or something like that. I like just doing the readings. I like doing, I do readings at conventions all the time, and, uh, and I like doing it for the podcast. So I want to get back onto doing that again because I like doing that. It's a good place to, you know, talk about my work and such. You know, some of the most popular, in terms of number of downloads, uh, podcasts I did for Dead Kitchen Radio were the ones where I talked about old projects. You know, there's one where I talked about the Klingon books that I, the various Klingon books I've written for the Star Trek novel line. Uh, one where I talked about my three supernatural novels and so on. On the Audible thing, I was chatting at Opticon last year, which is the Irish science fiction convention that's been gone about 30 years, to Emma Newman, who did the Split World series. And although she was and had recorded for Audible, she had to audition to do her own books. Yeah. Well, not everybody actually, you know, I mean, it's an understandable policy. Not every author is good at reading their own work. I've been to a few readings where that has been very evident. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to cut off the flow. All of my books are available on audio. My Super City Police Department novel, The Case of the Claw, is available on audio. I did a novel called uh, Guilt and Innocence, which is part of a shared universe thing called The Scattered Earth, is available for audio. Um, my Dungeons & Dragons novel actually was available for audio, which I didn't even know until I got a royalty check. Um, <laughs> I got you know, royalty, you know, all this money for the audio books. There's an audio book I liked. I went over to Audible. Oh, hey, look! <laughs> and a couple of anthologies I've been in have audio versions as well. Um, Out of Tune, uh, which was published by Journalstone, it's a, a bunch of short stories based on old ballads. And the X-Files anthology IDW did has an audio version. The V-Wars shared world anthologies that Jonathan Mayberry edited, uh, they all have audio versions as well. And I've got stories in the first and third of those. Actually, the uh, the reading for my story in the first V-Wars anthology, which was called The Ballad of Big Charlie, another story, by the way, that takes place in the Bronx, was read by a wonderful actress named uh, Lisa Renee Pitts, who did a phenomenal job with the story. I was That was one of my favorite readings of my own work that I've ever heard. It must be extra gratifying when someone can bring your words out into the open light and you can experience it probably for the first time in a different format. Yeah, it is nice. Looking back at, like you say, uh, your long list of writing credits, I'm a big Star Trek fan, <laughs> more so definitely than Alan. <laughs> no, 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 hang on. I, 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 I am going to be uh, soon starting a Next Generation podcast, which I must admit I to a large extent hated with the burning passion of a thousand fiery sons but yeah but between us who's got the shelf of star trek books and dvds and blu-rays and i have this annoying habit of switching countries <laughs> it tends to go when you, when you can only bring with you what you can carry in three suitcases it does tend to trim somewhat what you decide to keep fair point yeah you've written extensively in the star trek universe for ds9 tng original series as you said the klingon art of war and other klingon themed books you seem to have a, an affinity with the Starfleet Corps of Engineers, though. I was actually the editor of that series. Um, ah. That started in 2000. It was originally uh, it was a deal between Simon & Schuster and Microsoft, because Microsoft was launching their MS Reader program, which was a, an e-book reader for your home computer in 2000. This was you know before the Kindle, before the Sony e-reader, before the Nook. Oh, nostalgia. Yeah. And as part of the promotion for the release of MS Reader, they wanted original, pre-original Star Trek books. Basically, over a weekend, uh, John Orover, who is one of the, the editors at Simon & Schuster in, in charge of the Star Trek line, he and I basically spent a weekend coming up with the Starfleet Corps of Engineers. And then Dean Wesley Smith, Christy Golden, and I wrote those first three novellas that launched the series. And then Simon & Schuster, the, the, the publishers of the Star Trek fiction, were, were very much at the forefront of doing ebooks. They jumped on that bandwagon before it became a thing. 
So they decided they thought that doing a, an ongoing series of ebooks would be a good thing. So after those first three, they decided to make it a monthly series. So starting in at the end of 2000, early 2001, after the initial release of those three, we decided to make it a monthly series. And editing a monthly series is is on top of the commitments they already had would have been too much. I see where this is going. Well, it was too much of the people on staff, so they hired me as a freelancer to edit the series on a freelance basis. That's how I wound up doing that. My condition for agreeing to edit the series was that I would be able to write for it periodically. <laughs> um, and John was kind enough to edit. He edited the stuff I wrote. So yeah, that series was very much almost like doing a TV show, and I was the showrunner for it. Um, yeah. And it was a lot of fun. It was That was one of the... In my career as an editor, which goes back further than my career as a writer, that is tied with the Marvel novels I edited in the 90s as one of the most gratifying projects of my career. It was it was tremendous fun, and I'm really proud of the work that we did. When it comes to work that isn't your own, or at least not from your creative soul, you know, licensed properties, novelizations, do you have a, a particular preference of which you like to work on? Um, There's a lot of uh, different ones I like. I mean, Star Trek is one... I'm particularly fond of because I've been a Star Trek fan since birth. So getting to work on that is always nice. You know, I've done a bunch of stuff of prose tie-ins to Marvel Comics, which is also something I've been I've been a fan of since I was a little kid. One of the most gratifying properties I worked on, just in terms of what I got to do with it, was Farscape. Because I got, in addition to writing a novel back in 2001 when the show was on the air and a couple of short stories, in 2008, I was hired by Boom Studios to work with the show's creator, Rockney S. O'Bannon, and the two of us together plotted and wrote three years worth of post-finale Farscape novels. Basically, we did season five of Farscape in yeah. comic book form. That was wonderful. That was so much fun to do, being able to continue the story of Farscape, because I was a huge fan of the show when it was on the air. Oh, me too. The novel I did was called House of Cards, and I still have people coming up to me now talking about how much they loved House of Cards. The uh, The comic book was just, uh, you know, we basically, we did three four-issue miniseries, and then we did 24 issues of the uh, of a monthly, ongoing monthly comic. Plus, I also wrote three four-issue miniseries that focused on Dargo, since we didn't, we weren't able to use him in the uh, in the post-finale comics, what with him being dead and all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, That's not always an issue, depending upon which series. I think at one point, because one of the four-issue miniseries had them going to an alternate timeline where Dargo and Zan were both still alive. <laughs> they so we got to write them. So yeah, that was the uh, a wonderful project to work on. Yeah, I've gotten to work in a bunch of different things that I've really loved, uh, which has been nice. I mean, uh, I haven't necessarily been a fan of everything I've worked on going into it. There were a few, there were, there were several cases where people came to me first and said, hey, we want you to do a novel about X. Some cases I was a fan, like with Supernatural, for example, the editor approached me not knowing if I was familiar with the show or not, but he liked my work and thought I would be a good fit. As it happened, like three months earlier, I had gotten into the show. I hadn't watched it during its first season, but I caught up with it over summer reruns. And uh, as the second season was starting, that was when they got the license to do the books. And the editor uh, in charge of it called me up and said, hey, want to write a Supernatural book? And I said, yes. So I got to three of those. I'd feel sorry for any author now who got that opportunity and would, would be given, what, 10, 11 seasons <laughs> of DVDs. Stargating is saying Star Trek or Star Wars. Yeah. Stargate, you got, you know, what, 10 seasons of SG-1, five seasons of Atlantis, two seasons of Universe, and three movies. The Supernatural, and the, did you have the same sort of hit with that cliffhanger that I got? I am behind on the show, so I... No, um, I'm, ta I'm talking season one. Back then, yeah. yeah no, that was... Back then, I, I watched season one, and I didn't have season two, and season two wasn't actually out yet, and I was left sitting there with this cliffhanger, kind of... I then formed what I call my Supernatural rule. 
I will not watch the end of any season of Supernatural unless I physically have the entire following season in my hand. I actually lucked out because the season one cliffhanger I watched the week before season two aired because, like I said, I was catching up with it on the, the summer reruns. Oh. So uh, I, I actually got to pick it up the next week at least. Oh. Three months. After they got hit by the pile. <laughs> I've had my share of devastating cliffhangers, God knows, so you know. That's what they're designed to do. It, it wouldn't be a cliffhanger if you just walked yeah. away from it and didn't care. I still remember June of 1990, uh, me and a bunch of friends of mine were watching The Best of Both Worlds Part 1, and this was before season-ending cliffhangers were a thing, really, you know. And just sitting there, you know, Mr. Warfire, and we're all screaming at the TV because we don't know what the hell happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got lucky over here. Yeah, pretty much back-to-back, so we didn't have a long summer vacation worrying about what we're going to happen to our beloved captain. Right then, let's move on to your short story in the uh, Pandemonium Far Horizons anthology. Time keeps on slipping. Which was an effort on my part to finally explain the soul patch. And you did it. (laughs) Because afterwards you think, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) That's it. What happens between a season finale and a a season premiere? Well, there you go. You know, for one character, virtually nothing. Well, maybe a week. For somebody else, months. The reason in particular for the time dilation aspect of the plot was Amanda Tapping's hair. There's no way her hair would have grown that much in a week. You know, there's just it, it, that's not... I mean, I've known people like that, but it just seemed unlikely to me that her hair would grow that much in a week. Well, there are still TV producers out there who will say, the audience will never notice, don't worry about it. And, you know, the soul patch, I mean, that was something that we're stuck with, from what I understand. You know, Christopher Judge basically grew it and said, live with it. <laughs> At least that one they hung a lantern on. You know, they basically said, what's with the thing? And, and it was like, don't ask him about it. And that was it. <laughs> which, which was a perfectly good way to deal with it, honestly. But, well, okay, let's, can we make a story out of this? And, you know, God knows, doing a wacky time travel adventure is something that is completely in keeping with Stargate. Um, it gave me a chance to do a story that focused on Carter and Teal, who I thought, you know, deserved more of a focus there. Samantha Carter is one of my absolute favorite characters in all of television history. Um, I adore that character for any number of reasons, including what I especially like about, unlike most of the scientist characters that you tend to get up to, and including Rodney McKay on the spinoff, is she's always qualifies everything. She explains how it may not work and and generally just doesn't, you know, always hedges her bets and doesn't promise anything she isn't 100% sure she can deliver. It's real yeah. science. Yeah. Um and and I like that about her. And I, and I and just, you know, she Amanda Tapping did such a good job of inhabiting that character. And Tilk was just fun, you know. Should you want to explore our scary early podcasts for several seasons, I think up to about mid-season 3, late season 4, I made a point in most episodes of mentioning what I called the Samantha Carter Superhold Moose. Because <laughs> that hair, I believe I said on more than one occasion, looks like the kind of plastic sculpted hair you get in a Lego figure. Yeah. It, it didn't move. It could probably, you could probably bounce bullets off it. <laughs> yeah, in fact, season four, when, when she came back from the planet with the shaggy hair, was the only time her, it was the first time her hair moved, really. But yeah, that, that part of that's, you know, short military haircut, but you know. Uh, yeah, they lined up with her hair over over the seasons. I think Stargate SG One just got lighter as it went yeah. along. I mean, part of it was. I, well, I think the the. I mean, she did cut it eventually, you know, because the, there's the, honestly the the hair she had at the beginning of season four would never wouldn't have lasted more than six and a half seconds for somebody actually in the Air Force. 
Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was finally cut because their Air Force advisor said, guys, come on. Because SG-1 in particular was very good about keeping getting the military details right, which is one of the things I liked about it. But the longer hair with the ponytail, I thought, worked on her, at least, that she had, you know, in the SG-1 movies and when she was on Atlantis. But um, Hunter and Silk were really my, my two favorite characters in SG-1 anyway. So, so doing a story that focused on them was part of what I was going for. Plus, you know, it was obvious that something happened to Carter and Teal'c, nothing happened to O'Neill because O'Neill looked exactly the same. So that worked out the time dilation <laughs> story. Having a lovely, typical SG-1 adventure on another planet that took several months, even though it only took a week. It gave you a nice little framework to base a story upon. Somebody reviewed the anthology on Goodreads and, and gave that story an honorable mention for, for actually coming up with a good explanation for the soul patch. <laughs> so for that alone, it was like my work here is done. Were you approached to write that story or did you do it off the cuff and then found a place for it? There is a Stargate project that is still in limbo at the moment, so I can't really talk about it, but it was something I had been talking with Sally Malcolm and the other folks at Pandemonium about at that point. Yeah. And I was also, I don't remember if that was before or after I had actually pitched Kali's Wrath, but either way, I was already in conversation with Pandemonium about doing something for them. And the anthology just, you know, it came up and, and I was given the opportunity to pitch for it. I've only just kind of really started getting into Pandemonium, aka Stargate novels, I just recently read the, uh, well, the unofficial season six of Stargate Atlanta series, the eight books in that, absolutely fantastic. I thought they were the piecemeal SG-1 books I've been, you know, dabbling with. So as a huge fan of Stargate and running a Stargate podcast, I really probably should <laughs> read the rest of them. I think over the last couple of years, there's that much variety in books, not only, uh, you know, from the big publishing houses, but the self-published novels. I've been reading some great stuff from authors I'd never even heard of a few years ago. Melissa, Joe, and Amy are having a, a wonderful time and doing a really nice job with the Atlantis books. Those are, uh, I'm really glad they're doing that because that's, you know, in particular, Atlantis is, was one that cried out for further development. What happened after the finale, so. I don't think anybody were too happy about the finale of Atlantis. It was, I mean, honestly, I thought the finale itself, the actual story they did since that was the series finale, I thought that was actually, as series finales go, rather strong. It was a big story. It gave everyone a moment in the sun. Um, you know, it had them in essence, eventually as is the hallmark of Stargate solving the problem with science, which is one of the things <laughs> I like about the Stargate franchise is that they very often solve the problem with science. Yes. Let me whip out this FDL drive that I've been working yeah. on in secret. The finale also verified what I always believed was true, which is that Radek Zelenka is the smartest person on the base. Yeah. We, Amen. We, we need a story featuring Radek and only Radek. <laughs> well, there's, there's uh, Far Horizons had, I think, it was, it was actually a Radek and Ronan story, which was great. <laughs> oh, when they were stranded yeah. on that derelict. Um, yeah. And yeah, no, I love Zelenka. In fact, I actually, in one of my Star Trek novels, I created a character who's in the Starfleet Corps of Engineers named Bojan Hadzic, which is basically the Star Trek version of Zelenka. He's pretty much entirely Zelenka. Not a pigeon fancier as well, is he? No, no, I didn't include that. But uh, personality-wise, it's, it's basically him. I mean, the... Uh, I love Zelenka so much. He was, he, yeah, because he's one of the reasons why I believe him to be the smartest person is that he is smart enough to let Rodney have to deal with all the nonsense. Uh, uh, he doesn't want to be in charge. Speaking of. Because in charge, that's, there's like paperwork and responsibilities, and then everybody works in for everything. Zelenka can just sit off on the side, do what he needs to do, and, you know. Speaking uh, as a pre thesis master student, I can tell you that even if he has his own doctorate, the way Rodney treats Zelenka is the way every postdoc treats any graduate student. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Pure, anyone who's ever worked as a graduate student or worked for Docker or just helped out is just basically, uh, you do all the work and I might put you down as co-author on the paper. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. One of my favorite moments, I mentioned this when I, when I did my rewatch of, uh, of Stargate for Core.com. There was a, I think it was Beneath the Serpent's Grasp, I forget. It was, it was one, one of the, one of the, uh, one of the SG-1 episodes that had Serpent in the title. Um, the way they were trying to defuse some mines. And the code they're inputting isn't working. And then Carter realizes that the Phoenician numerical system that, that Daniel's using starts with one and not zero. Because Phoenician didn't have a zero. And Carter explains that there has to be a zero in order for the computing to work. So he had to rejigger how he was translating the numbers and then the code worked. And I just love that because so many TV shows and movies, when they portray scientists, they know, you know, they know, they do all the science as if that's how it works. SG-1 was always aware of the fact that Carter was an astrophysicist and Jackson was a linguist and an archaeologist. And those are different disciplines that have different skills. And I really appreciated that. Did you notice how Jackson got more buff as the seasons went on? Yeah, he kind of had to. Just the sheer level of physical activity that he had to engage in as a member of SG-1, you know, that, that makes sense. You know, given the situations they were in, and what they had to do, it was probably a case where he had to, you know, buff up or, you know, risk getting killed, you know. <laughs> well, uh, getting killed never stopped Daniel. Granted. Yeah, Daniel Lazarus Jackson. Yeah, starting in the movie, yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know, i completely forgotten that. Yeah, yeah, he died in the movie and Rob put him in the sarcophagus so he could mess with him some more. Oh, don't, don't the it's episode which was, was actually... You're not going to talk uh, about a need, I'm are you? I'm trying not to, but it, 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 it's, uh, I surprised Mike because my heinous dislike of Orgo was well known. <laughs> in, in our series wrap-up for SG-1, the question was, what is your least favorite episode? And rather than picking Orgo, I picked Need. Okay. Because it, it just irritated me, and I felt it actually ripped off the DS9 equivalent. It, it's practically a trope, you know? Guy gets mind-controlled and either becomes evil or tries to commit suicide. And I thought, to be honest with you, Colomini did it a lot better in DS9. Mm, yeah. Which also links into your DS9 novels. Yes. <laughs> Everything's linked to everything else. <laughs> There's no getting away from the fact that ideas get spread around. It's just how you spin them to uh, create no, okay, something Keith new. Keith simply destroys the science fiction genre like a colossus. <laughs> <laughs> right then, shall we move on to the reason this podcast exists? Your upcoming novel, Callie's Wrath. We won't go too much into spoilers because uh, obviously there'll be plenty of people who have yet to read the book, even though this interview is going to get released just a couple of days after the book gets yeah. released. This book, anyhow, the print book. The book is, is, goes live on uh, May 19th. The print book... UK and America. I'm pretty sure it's the same release date for both. And um, the print book usually comes about two weeks after, so sometime in June as well. I had a quick look on Amazon for the paperback release date. It's not up yet. Yeah, they usually those don't usually go up until the book is out. Yeah, we'll leave that little bit there. Okay, then. Uh, I think you said, did you approach Pandemonium about Kali's Wrath then? Yeah, it was, uh, it was something I had pitched to them. They were uh, certainly happy at the opportunity to work with me, you know, given my resume. And I was real, I've been a fan of SG-1 for ages, so I wanted to do something, just the timing never worked before this. And I wanted to do, you know, just pitching a straight-up SG-1 adventure with them facing a gold. The reason I went with Colleen 
in particular is because we only saw her in that one two-parter. She was in Summit and Last Stand as one of the system lords at the summit that Daniel infiltrated. I always have been a big fan of the actress who played Cully, a Canadian actress named Salika Matthew. And I always thought there was an opportunity to do some fun stuff there, and so I went with her. Well, it's surprising. I did a quick read of Wiki, and a minor character in the show, the background they've created for her is... Most of that was from the Stargate role-playing game, actually. That's official, then? Yeah, more or less, yeah. I mined some of that for the book, Yeah. although I, I did some variations on it as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's more or less official, but the RPG was set up so you could go up against a bunch of different ones, and there was nothing established about her, so they, they, had, they were pretty free to, uh, to do what they wanted with it. I mined it for some of Cully's backstory. There's actually a, uh, an entire chapter that takes place during Ra's reign on Earth. It's a flashback chapter in, in the novel yeah. where we get Kali and also Shiva, another uh, god from that region. An Unus host. I made use of that, that particular thing that they established. Basically, I had the transition, you know, from the transition, all the gold went from Unus host to human host. Yeah. Including, you know, showing, you know, Ra first doing it and then him encouraging the others to do it. And Kali does it, Shiva does not. And it's one of several ways in which Shiva rebels and then leading to Kali getting the more prominent position. That was a lot of fun to do. That was actually one of my one of my favorite chapters in the book was doing that little backstory and showing Ra and Apophis and a bunch of others ruling on Earth. Um, I also got to do a scene with Ares, who was mentioned in It's Good to be King, but we didn't actually see Ares himself. And as a little in-joke, and I, I don't know how many people would get it, I basically had him look like Kevin Smith's character in Xena. <laughs> oh, no. Black hair, black beard, leather, boots, you know. Uh, <laughs> because why not? Why not, indeed? It's probably a reference a lot of people won't get, but I remember watching Xena. The right people will get it. The best in-jokes are the ones where, you know, if you don't get the reference, it's not going to matter. It's just a quick physical description. You know, this is what he looks like, so you know what to picture. If you do get it, though, it adds a little extra to it. Again, it, it must be... It must be good to work in a universe where there is so much material that you're free to use and uh, interpret in your own way. Yeah, and fun part was remembering that it's the fifth season, so there's stuff they don't have yet, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they hadn't even finished constructing Prometheus at this point, so they don't have ships, they don't have, you know, they don't have the fancy-schmancy Asgard scanners. Um, that is what I was going to ask you, writing in an established universe, which you've done a lot of, how do the different ones vary to the extent that, I mean, with some, do you get an A4 sheet? With others, do you get a novel which says, this is what you can do with these characters, this is what you cannot do with these characters? Lord, no. You, you write your story, and if you do something wrong, they tell you. Hmm. That's basically how it works. <laughs> you know, there's very rarely a, that formal a set of rules. It's not that organized. You know, you, you do, well, and part of the process is you write the plot first. That's true of every tie-in. You, you write a plot outline, and you don't write a single word of the novel until that plot outline is approved. That helps, you know, that there's, there's a lot of possibilities that are cut off at pass because you were told at the outline stage, no, you can't do that, so. It makes things tidier. And sometimes it's, stuff, and particularly if you're writing a tie-in to an ongoing series, then, you know, that's a whole different set of things. As an example, I did a Sleepy Hollow novel which I wrote between the first and second seasons. It was taking place at the end of the first season. I wrote a pitch, sent it in. They loved it. It involved sword. That is a real piece of American history. There were 10 elegant swords that were awarded to a bunch of heroes of the colonies, people who had you know, done good military service for the colonies. They were awarded in 1775, but didn't, weren't actually 
issued to the people who won them until 1785 because it took that long for the swords to be made. You know, this was this is pre-industrial. You know, it takes a while to make a nice sword. Yeah. So my story was those ten swords had mystic runes on them that could be used to cast spells, thus putting it in, in the right mode for, for Sleepy Hollow. They said, great, we love it, wonderful idea, can't be a sword. Turns out, as I found out later, that they had a magic sword as part of the story for season two. <laughs> so I had to change it to something else, which I did. It all worked out. But uh, yeah, that's the sort of thing that will happen. I couldn't possibly have known that they were going to do a magic sword, obviously. Mm-hmm. you know, They did, and so I had to adjust accordingly. So just on the staying with Collie's Roth, do you ever consider possible readers and would you possibly like one of the team, one of the actors from the show to read the book? This is feeding into my own personal favorite book. You mean reading an audio version or just reading a general? Yeah, reading an audio version. Oh, um, honestly, any of them. I mean, the book, every character, all the members of, of, all four members of SG-1 uh, have several chapters in their respective points of view. And everybody gets, you know, pretty good moments, I think. So because of that, any one of the four of them would work as readers of the thing. If we're going to Blue Sky, you could go with the full cast audio production. Oh, well, that would be awesome, yes. The only issue there is is that obviously uh, no Don Davis. Yeah. But uh, for that matter also, and, and this is, if you've seen the cover, this is obvious anyway, there's quite a bit for Braytac and Jacob to do in this as well. In fact, basically, there are parts of this book that I wrote as a road movie with Braytac and Jacob. Oh, you know, the cranky parts of, of, of the SGC working together. Because I always thought that was a missed opportunity. We really didn't get to see the two of them work together very much. There was Allegiance and, and one or two other times. But these are two characters who were basically the father figures for both Teal'c and Carter. And I thought that there was, you know, there were opportunities there that never really got dealt with and then of course they killed jacob off so <laughs> that was part of what i wanted to do was was put those two characters together and honestly either carmen organziano or um oh god i'm tony amandola thank you tony amandola who was an absolute sweetheart <laughs> i feel terrible that i forgot his name either one of them could read the book too i think and it would work really nicely because those two characters play such a big role in the, in this story no if you're curious and i've said this before so mike's well aware of it i would listen to claudia back read the phone book the only thing of that is that Val is actually in the book. I bet she would yeah. do a good job reading it. But like I said, it's late fifth season, so it, it predates the character of Vala by a couple of years. You could throw Latesh. Um, Latesh, yeah, she's familiar. The only goal, well, actually, several gold show up uh, in the flashback. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, sorry. That's okay. Interesting that you've used the Ritu. That was the other thing I wanted to do. That came specifically out of um, rewatching the series and realizing that they never really did anything with that. Oh, yeah, it just stopped, didn't it? You know, no follow-up or anything. The second season in particular, they were trying to expand out beyond the gold, and it didn't really work. Uh, Part of the problem was a lot of those were stories that... I said this in in my Tor.com rewatch. A lot of these stories that involved other alien species, like the Ritu and a few others, they weren't distinctive enough to make them different from any other science fiction show. The gold and the Asgard and, and the the tying of alien cultures to Earth mythology was what made Star Trek, not Star Trek, what made Stargate unique (laughs) uh, in the pantheon of of science fiction television. So that was really where their focus should have stayed. And I think they realized that after a certain point. And that's why why they didn't really pick up on a lot of those things. The Ritu, I thought, were worth, you know, pursuing a little bit more, um, especially given the effect they have on the gold. And um, it's funny because the TERs were still used a lot. Yeah. So... 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, seriously looking forward to having a read of this. I'm currently rereading all my Star Trek TOS paperback, <laughs> but I will put them aside and uh, read Callie's Wrath when it comes out. Cool. No question about that. Glad to hear it. Part of the fun also, by the way, was also just getting into the characters' heads, which is the one thing, one of the things I like about doing tie-in fiction is the one thing you can do in a book that you can't do on screen is get inside a character's head. And that's an opportunity that I really enjoy being able to do, is show the innermost thoughts of the characters. Didn't quite work out well with June or even Blade Runner, you know, stumbled a few times trying to do that. Dune, you got to bear in mind that Dune is basically an environmental novel which you couldn't sell, so he wrapped a science fiction story around it. No, I'm not going to criticise. I still enjoy both the movies. <laughs> Lots of people don't, but I do. Oh, you mean the movie? Uh, part of the fun of it was being able to, you know, get into O'Neill's head, getting into Carter's head and Daniel's head, especially Silk's head, you know, uh, the, the free-floating guilt there. Um, is is Silk's head, was... he, head full of candles? <laughs> I did make talk about that, because yeah. uh, when Hammond basically calls SG-1 to the meeting room, o O'Neill has to go off and get him, and, and he can call Carter and, and Daniel on the phone. Still, he's got to go and get him, and he's, and he's always scared of that, because he's worried he's going to knock over all the candles and start a fire. <laughs> <laughs> I've always thought you look in Jack's head, there's a there's little Homer Simpson go, That was interesting, because with Jack, we noticed when they're on the, the mentioning the black hole, Jack suddenly pipes up about creaching discs and things, and you tend to forget yeah. that he was an astronomer. Yeah. You just think he's the dumb marine type. He, um, I actually was, did a little bit of that. Basically, that a lot of his disinterest in the science stuff was feigned, because if he expressed actual interest, Carter and Daniel would talk even more. <laughs> <laughs> and we all know eventually it's always magnets. Yeah. Okay, then. Stargate SG-1, Kali's Wrath, 28th book in the series from Vandemonium. Comes out on ebook the 19th of May. Have a look in your local Amazon store. I'm sure it's uh, going to be offered direct from uh, Stargate Novels as well. Before we wrap up the show, any other projects you're working on, Keith? I mentioned uh, the urban fantasy that takes place in the Bronx. That's called A Furnace Sealed. Uh, that's going to be published by Wordfire Press sometime either at the end of this year or beginning of next year. Uh, that's yeah. scheduled yet, mostly because I haven't finished it yet. <laughs> Currently, Joe Books is Canadian publisher, uh, is putting out a bunch of books based on Marvel comic superheroes. The first one was my Thor book called Dueling with Giants, which is the first of a trilogy called Tales of Asgard. The second book is a Sif book featuring the, the Shield Maiden and sometime Paramour of Thor's. Sif's book is called Even Dragons Have Their Endings and has Sif going up against a nasty dragon that's menacing a town in Asgard. And then the third book will feature the Warriors 3, and it's called Godhood's End. Uh, with the Warriors through on a quest to rescue the Golden Apples of Immortality, which have been stolen by a giant. It happens. <laughs> the Thor book is already out. Uh, the Sif book should be out soon, uh, with the Warriors 3 book probably coming out in the fall. I've got the Stargate SG-1 novel, as we've discussed. The I've written... I've got a bunch of short stories, actually, that are both out or coming out. I wrote a short story for the X-Files anthology, Trust No One, uh, which came out last summer. Um, I've got a story in the third V-Wars anthology, which is Jonathan Mayberry's uh, Shared World thing. Another Shared World anthology called Limbus Incorporated, the Journal Stone is publishing. It's a horror anthology. Um, I've got a story in that that'll be out in, in the end of July. Uh, it's Limbus Inc. Book 3, uh, which has a bunch of novellas, one by me, one by Shauna McGuire, uh, Laird Barron, Jonathan Mayberry, and David Liss. And I've got stories coming up in an anthology called Alternate Sherlock's, which is uh, short stories that all involve... Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson taking place anywhere other than Victorian England. Huh, okay, then. 
Mm. Basically, the qualification is that it has to not take place in Victorian England. Mine actually takes place in modern New York, but it's nothing like elementary. <laughs> <laughs> the, la- the, the fifth book in the Precinct series should be out, hopefully, uh, later this year. It's called Mermaid Precinct. I've got an original series of novellas that are going to be released in serial form later this year, uh, featuring the Super City Police Department, which is about cops in a city filled with superheroes. I've done a novel and a couple of short stories in this setting, and the the first of three serial novellas is called Avenging Amethyst, and that'll be out later this year. I did a Heroes Reborn novella based on the TV show from last fall. Titan Books just put out a compilation of those novellas, which is now available. Uh, I'm in collection number two. It's a story called Save the Cheerleader, Destroy the World, which fills in the gap between the end of the original Heroes series and the new miniseries from last year through the eyes of Claire Bennett, Hayden Benetier's character. And what else? I've got coming out three short stories, one in an anthology called Knights of the Living Dead, which are stories that take place around the George Romero movie. And George Romero is actually co-editing the anthology with Jonathan Mayberry. Uh, I'm doing a story for an Aliens anthology called Bug Hunt, which Titan will be putting out also in 2017. And I'm doing uh, Jonathan Mayberry again. He and I tend to work together a lot for some reason. Jonathan is letting other people write Joe Ledger stories, which is his special ops character. I'm doing a story for that as well. And I think that's everything. Now I understand why the Kickstarter one is. <laughs> can, 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 can I ask, when do you actually sleep and eat? I'm sorry, what is this sleep of which you speak? I'm not familiar with the concept and, uh, at all. Since, I... since he mentioned Kickstarter several times, I'm going to point out that as genre fans, Compared with Messrs. Rothfuss and Martin, you're quite speedy. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, my books are a lot shorter than George's. Uh, Peter F. Hamilton's books are shorter than George's. Yes, also true. One time I was uh, was at Dragon Con, and they put me on an autograph table. My autographing is at the same time as Brandon Sanderson's. Uh, (laughs) And so I'm next to Brandon, he's got a line. People are coming off Brandon's line. And as they're walking by and saying, hey, if you like Brandon's work, you should try Dragon Precinct. It's like the Wheel of Time, only shorter. <laughs> that actually worked a couple of times. So, Yeah, I, I, I listened to the first two books of the Stormlight Chronicles. Book three is uh-huh. not out yet. And basically the entire 43 and a half hours of the first book is preamble and setup. As a result, basically, because he set everything up over about 1,200 pages in the first book, the second book really rocks along. I mean, I'd come into the house or I'd arrive where I was going and I'd stand there for 10 minutes until I could get to a bit that I'd be reasonably able to press stop. <laughs> so yeah, the second book's right along, but the first one, uh, it's a struggle. I listened to three or four other books in between while I was listening to it. Sorry, I cut across you. Apologies. That's okay. Convention appearances. I'm looking at your Goodreads page. You've got a list of convention appearances for the near future? I'm going to be in, um, I don't know when this podcast is going live, but on May 21st, I'm going to be at the Simpson Library Comic Convention in uh, Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Harrisburg, the state capital. Um, that's a one-day convention on the 21st. The following weekend, which is Memorial Day weekend here in the States, I'm going to be at Balticon 50. Speaking of George R.R. Martin, he's going to be the guest of honor there, and I'm going to be there, be doing the usual panels and things. In July, I'm going to be doing three different conventions, actually. I'm going to be at In Conjunction in Indianapolis over 4th of July weekend, uh, the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. Following weekend, I will be at Troy Leave in Baltimore area, which is a media convention that I go to every year. It's one of my big conventions. A wonderful, wonderful convention. Mostly a media convention, but there's a fairly heavy author presence as well, particularly among people who have written Star Trek fiction at various times, and it's a lot of fun. And then the weekend after that, I'm going to be the guest of honor at uh, ROCON, which is a small convention in Mystic, Connecticut. I will also be at DragonCon 
uh, and New York Comic Con, as I almost always am, uh, as well as some smaller conventions as well. If you go to my website at decandido.net, decandido.net itself is kind of a mess, but it's a gateway to all the places that are better maintained, <laughs> including my Facebook page, my blog, my Twitter feed, all that good stuff. It is fairly easy to keep up with me on social media and such. Excellent. Cool. Well, I want to thank you, Keith, for joining us for this interview. It's been a pleasure. I'm here. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, folks. The links to all the books and convention appearances that Keith will be making in the near future will be uh, listed on our website. We'll also uh, give links to his Facebook page and Twitter, so pay a visit to there. Thank you very much, Keith, for joining us. It has really been a pleasure. I was a bit nervous about this, <laughs> but it, it went fairly well. It was fun. Thank you very much. Have a good Saturday. Thanks. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye now. <laughs> A big thank you to Keith for joining us over Skype for this chat. Audio quality was a bit iffy at times, but we think it went well. Let us know what you thought, and when you get around to reading Khalees Raff, make sure you review it favourably, if indeed you enjoyed it. As Keith mentioned, he has an extensive social media presence, so to recap, you can find him on Decandidido.net, Wiki, and KRADC's Inaccurate Guide to Life, which is his live journal page. He's also on Twitter, at Craydeck, and on Facebook. All the links are in the show notes. So, since the ebook was released a few days ago, I've had time to read it. So here is my, by and large, spoiler-free review. SG-7 gate to a small island surrounded by a frigid ocean. They're under orders from the SGC to do a standard recon, but there are signs of a ring system nearby, so no need to risk using the rafts more to the shore. Upon arriving at their destination, they immediately come under fire and chaos and carnage erupts. Blood is spilt. So, pretty good start to Khalees Raff, and the pressure on Stargate Command continues to mount, as previously seen enemies and the more regular bad guys threaten the Tari, Tokra, and the Free Jafar, with the system lord Kali at the centre of things. Khalees Raff offers up some very interesting backstory to Khalees, one of the lesser known system lords, played by Salika Matthew on the TV series as well as the activities on a newly conquered Earth, when Ra was creating his paradise for his people. This time of change, as the world adopted human host and leave behind the Eunus, was fascinating. You can indeed understand how conflict within the system lords will be triggered by the new concepts being introduced, and it never gets old to hear about some of our long-dead megalomaniacs, way back when they were still full of life and arrogance, and were shaping the myths that Tari was raised on. The novel offers up many opposing viewpoints in terms of the Gwold and the Jaffa, and it was rewarding to hear they showed some benevolence on the part of the younger Kali. Although a gold is a gold, as Daniel isn't shy in spelling out, despite being captured and exploited once again. Kali herself was an interesting character to say the least, but for me Captain Patel was a standout addition to the Stargate family. She was a former combat pilot sidelined due to a physical defect, who like many grasped the opportunity the SGC provided despite the initial thought that a posting to Cheyenne Mountain was a dead end to her career. Her courage and strength under fire, combined with her common sense and intelligence, really shone, and she was adaptable to some strange events, especially when dealing with the first prime of Kali. It may indeed have been interesting to get a scene with Kali and Patel together, if only to explore how Kali may have felt about her people, grew after the Gwal fled the earth. There was plenty to go on, keep you interested, so no complaints. I really enjoyed reading Khalees Raff. Keith did an excellent job allowing me to appreciate the new characters and the use of existing minor and not-so-minor characters. And well, who wouldn't have liked to see an episode of the show featuring Braytac and Jacob on an adventure? So there you go, a short and sweet review. 
The book has been sold on Amazon, Smashwords, Crossroads Press, with the paperback due in a couple of weeks. Well worth checking out if you want to get a little new Stargate in your life. Okay then, if you want to get in touch with us, then you can do so via the contact form on our website, which is gatecast.co.uk, or via email using gatecastpodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Google+, and we're carried on iTunes and Stitcher Internet Radio. You'll find all those links on our website. You'll also find the link to the independent RSS feed, which carries every episode we've released so far. You can copy that and manually add it to a podcatcher. Okay then, once again, thank you very much to Keith. We hope you enjoyed the interview. Next week, Stargate Universe, Episode 1, A Part 1. We hope you join us for that. Have a listen to the promo, and then we'll close the show up. This may be the greatest opportunity for exploration mankind has ever known. Oh my God, this is awesome! People want to know what's going on. That ship is the best chance we have of getting home. Hell of a ride, huh? I like it here. You really have no idea where this Stargate is going to send you. It's got to go somewhere. Welcome to Destiny. Yes! Stargate Universe, an original series, premieres this Friday at 9, only on Sci-Fi. Until then, I've been Mike. I've been Alan. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Gatecast, hosted by Alan and Mike. Join us at gatecast.co.uk. Stargate forever. Hey.